If you'll make your way to 1 Kings chapter 11, we're going to be looking at some text. I'm not going to put anything in chapter 11 or 12 on the screen. We're going to look at that. If you go anywhere else, we'll put that on the screen so you don't have to jump around so much. But I've got a special thing that um, uh, Dustin Jones wrote I want to share with you because it, you're going to think about this tonight. Um, it's to the tune of Jesus Loves Me, okay? Jesus likes you, this I know. You're my preacher and my bro. Even though you preach too long, when you speak, you are not wrong. Isn't that sweet? That is a, I told, <laughs> I told him in a text that, uh, did he know that Jesus loved him? You know, because he'll do that every once in a while. I said, even though you're a lawyer, did you know Jesus loves you? And that's what he sends back. So anyway, you don't get the last word when it comes to him. I guess you've learned that probably. Anyway. Okay, so a bit of a, a disclaimer tonight. Uh, this, this is a harsh sermon. Uh, uh, and, and some are going to argue it's too harsh. Randy is going to correct me before the night is over. I know this already. We've talked about this some. I'm just going to make my argument and, and point out some things because <clears throat> uh, I, I may be too harsh on Solomon as we go along. But I, I do want to acknowledge and really highlight some of the mistakes he made because he's a great example of our contemporary temptations. Uh, in a position we put ourselves in. I'm not the judge of Solomon. I'm not going to pronounce what ends up happening with Solomon. I have no desire to do that except to say he put himself in some dangerous territory. And I really long for God's people not to do that to themselves. And this is especially to college students and young people, I suppose. But, but uh, we'll find out that Solomon was actually old when he fell prey to this. This was not his young man problem. It was an older man problem. So don't think you can coast once you've been a Christian for 20 or 30 years. The danger is still ever-present. And the goal is simple, is to find out what in the world happened to this man. Consider the advantages. I want you to see this in the text. You know this. He had David as his father and a living example. Now, the rest of the kings are all compared to David. For all the way through the next several hundred years... Kings are compared to David. And of course, they could never have met David. They just know the track record that he had. And he was considered an outstanding king. And they wanted to model, they, they were supposed to model their reign after David, right? Solomon not only knew that, but he actually lived with David, saw him rule, saw him reign, and got to take ex eyewitness um, impressions off of David. That puts him in a advantage. Second, he had a ridiculous amount of divine wisdom. God came and blessed him with wisdom straight from God more than anyone else. Third, the Lord actually appeared to him twice at least, spoke to him at least four times audibly, direct, direct, audible, great promises from God and also warnings. God was like putting a warning sign in front of him. And then God blessed him with peace and prosperity, rest from his enemies around, and so he, had, he didn't have the pressure of external forces coming against him. He had a wonderful sense of Pax Israeli, right? Like Pax Roman. <coughs> Excuse me. And he had faithful prophets as a source of guidance, and also Scripture itself. Now here's the thing that we need to remember. We have these advantages too. We have great spiritual examples around us. In this room, 
in our extended families and other people that we know. We have divine wisdom given by God through His Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ, Paul tells us. The Lord has not appeared to us like He did Solomon, but we have seen Jesus. We have the full script of God's revelation. So, if we're going to criticize Solomon, be careful because it can become self-criticism. We've had the advantages he's had. All right, so what happened to him? Number one, he chose to be politically correct. I want you to look back at chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 3. This is that great chapter where he, he pleases God by asking him for wisdom when God said he could have anything he wanted. But before that ever happened, in chapter 3, verse 1, we see this clue, right? Solomon just became king at the end of chapter 2. It was established, chapter 3, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter, brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Right off the get-go, he makes a political alliance that includes marrying a foreign woman. This was the wisdom of politics at that time. You create alliances that give you some extra power by aligning yourself with someone else. But you may remember the entire idea of kings was this. We want to be like everybody else. And then when, king, when Solomon becomes king, he starts to model his reign like everyone else. He did things the world's way. He chose the political wisdom of his time. Now, being God's king, he should have chosen God's wisdom. But instead, he played the game of human politics. And he played it by the rules of the world. And it started leading him astray immediately. Now I'm going to go political on you for a second. I'm going to ask you a hypothetical question. Sometimes you don't know whether it's hypothetical or rhetorical. I'm telling you this is a rhetorical question. You think it's possible, in your opinion, for a faithful Christian to maintain his faith and make it all the way to the President of the United States in politics? You think it's possible. You know, right, politics is a this-worldly game. It's a this-worldly situation, and you play by this world's rules. And sometimes that's not, not a problem because not all the rules are wrong according to our faith, but sometimes they are. And to be fair, we're going to have to compromise some. For Solomon to participate in the world scene, he had to operate by the world's ways, and alliances required marriages with other religions. And then all of a sudden, we have clear words from God. Do not marry people from these nations. There's God's rules, but here's the world's rules. Marry people and form alliances. So now all of a sudden, you either play with the world's rules in politics, or you go by God's rules. What are you going to do? And Solomon chose the world's. As, as great as his wisdom was, it was no match for that worldly pressure. Let me say it again. As wise as he was, it was no match for that worldly pressure. You see, living a Christian life in the pressure of the world isn't just about what you know, is it? It's not, well, if we knew enough, no, it's not about wisdom, is it? It's about something else. It's about whether I'm going to really keep myself distinct from the world or not. We celebrate Christians who can get to these positions of influence, whether in politics or anywhere else. 
But it's hard to do that because of the politically correct. That's the best way I know. And it's just, it's just how you get along in the world because here's the truth. You often have to disembowel your faith in order to make it that far. You have to believe in and live out of relativism and pluralism. You've got to say everybody's beliefs are equal and the same. And you've got to affirm all ideas. And guess what happens if you stand up against that? You get canceled. And there goes the end of you uh, pursuing those positions of influence. So now, okay, you either go along with all that and play the game, or you stand up for the rules that you believe in and get canceled. I'm a huge baseball fan. I love the old stories of those old-timers. Anybody ever heard of Sandy Koufax? Greatest left-handed pitcher in baseball history, in my opinion. He was also Jewish. Game one of the 1965 World Series was scheduled on Yom Kippur, one of the holiest days of the Jewish calendar. He was the best pitcher in baseball. You want to get your best person in there right away. And so game one, they want to schedule Sandy Koufax, and he says, I'm not even going to be in the stadium tonight. I'm going to be in the synagogue. Wow. You know Dodger Nation? Anybody know how large Dodger Nation is? It's humongous, right? It's, it's, and the pressure from the entire group of people, you've got, to, you've got to compromise and you've got to pitch for us. And he says, no. Well, they had Don Drysdale. I mean, that's not a lot of steps down, but it's a few steps down. So they put Don Drysdale in game one. Seven runs in less than three innings. They come out to get Don Drysdale out of the game, and he looks at the coach and he says, I bet right now you wish I was Jewish too. <laughs> it's this moment when I go with the world and it's pressure, or I go with God, there's this tra- right in the middle, and you're in that spot. And listen, this is the sweet spot. This is when you get to define yourself, and this is when you get to impress the world with the things that you believe. Do you do it, or do you go with the world? Sandy Koufax went with his faith, and it was tremendous. He ended up, despite not starting game one, winning three games. The last two were complete game shutouts to win the World Series. Unbelievable performance. But you've got those moments, beautiful moments, pressure-filled moments. Do I go with the status quo and do what everybody else wants me to do, or do I do what God wants me to do? And in that crux right there, right in that sweet spot, is your chance to be salt and light or to just go along with everybody else. The pressure's intense. And when you get to those moments and you compromise, something in you changes. Something changes that I don't know if you do that too many times that you can ever go back to what you once were. I'm not telling you how to handle this situation, but I can tell you I felt the pressure. Our kids were playing baseball back then, just little league. We weren't traveled. We were never that good. Thank the Lord we were never that good. I wasn't. They weren't either. But we would be playing in the city leagues on Wednesday nights, right? There's a makeup game. They try not to schedule them, but sometimes they had to be makeup games. And, and if a kid started the game and then left, when their spot comes up, your team has to take an out. So all of a sudden, you're, you're costing your team something. But we would have our kids play all the way up until on Wednesday night, we need to leave to get to church on time. And I want to tell you this. I didn't make that decision because I'm the preacher, I had to fight this, and I had to speak this clearly to my kids. It's not because I'm the preacher. It's because I'm a Christian. 
Now, I'm not telling you if you don't do it that way, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. That was my conviction, because here's what I think happens. If I give it up this time, what will my kids do with that moment? What will they do when it's their time to call it? And I'm going to tell you, all of a sudden, we live in a culture, we make all these excuses for why we miss. Whether it's just a Wednesday night or a Sunday, we have, we have the most casual excuses for missing. Do you remember the day when you felt guilty when you missed? But now, especially after COVID, the slightest of things, and then you can say, well, I'll, I'll get up and watch the sermon sometime during the week to make up for it. Like you're, you're personally offending me or something by not listening to the sermon or what. I'm just saying those moments, and that doesn't have to be the call you make. I'm not telling you what to do with that moment. It was our moment right here, y'all, and we chose to do it that way. I know other people who do different things that are just as good, so I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you what we chose. Because I'm afraid if we didn't, it wouldn't be a ball game. It would just be a concert next time. It would just be, oh, I just don't feel like it next time. And I would be gone forever. You mean just once or twice would change you? Yes. It was my fear. He did it 1,000 times. Second one, he married foreign women. Violating a clear command of God. Let's go to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Here's the interesting thing. You know, sometimes I wish God would give us um, Cliff's notes of explanation about why he gives us commands, Danny. I'd really like to know that sometimes, like his marriage stuff and, his, and, and, and loving your enemy stuff. Just give me a little bit of a an editorial. Just explain to me, because, you know, and this women's role thing, I'd really like an explanation for that one. I ain't getting it, okay? But there are those occasions. We do get one, and here's one of them, and this appears a lot of times, right? First Kings chapter 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite, he had a buffet, right? And from nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. Well, why? Are you being a killjoy? No, they will turn your heart away for other gods. Here's why. And the track record of Israelite history is God's right. Over and over and over again, some hot thing from another nation comes in and gets their attention, and they're off to the races again, scattered off-roading, right? That's how it happens. We know that's how it happens, and yet this is Solomon clung. Get that. You're supposed to, Deuteronomy, cling to God. Well, Solomon clung to the women. And he fell victim to this. Notice in verses 9 and 10, God does not blame the women. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and it commanded him concerning this thing. God told him twice in person that he should not go after other gods. He did not keep what the Lord commanded. Whose fault was this? The women? It was, it was the wise man Solomon. What happened to all the abundant wisdom? What happened to his obedience? Right there in the law, clearly before him, was the will of God. And verse 4, it says, when he was old, I love this line, 
His heart was not wholly true, right? For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And so all of a sudden, he was no longer devoted to God. And his resolve to serve God dissolved. Resolve dissolved, right? Supposed to cling to Yahweh, but he held fast to women. He turned, verses 2, 4, and 9, a word for repent. He repented from God and went after other gods. He followed them, verses 5, 6, and 10. And he gave his heart to them, verse 9. Women then became his God. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But to the married man is anxious about worldly things, about how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. This is a good man married to, this is a good Christian man married to a Christian woman. Know this, when you get married, your interests are divided. Is that true? It absolutely is true. And you know what? It's nothing wrong if it's two believers because the idea is you'll never ask me to do anything that would also be displeasing to God. But to an unbeliever, to an unbeliever, you want to keep them satisfied and happy too. And so you as a believer are willing to do things that are against God in order to keep her happy. And that is what God wants to avoid. That's why he doesn't want Christians marrying unbelievers. What happens if to please your spouse you have to displease God? Or here's one, young people, listen. What happens when in order to be engaged to her, you have to disengage from your God? What happens then? And here's what happens, you ready? Solomon. Used to think, you know, if God just gave us an explanation for why, I'd go along with it and that's great, but Solomon didn't. Full of wisdom, he blew right by that stop sign, and he never even touched the brake. Did he think he was so smart that he could give himself an exception to God's rule? It wouldn't affect him because he is so intelligent, he can prevent the subsequent consequence? Did he find himself so exceptional that the rules don't apply to him? Do we do this? I'm going to ask you another rhetorical question. Is it wrong for a Christian to marry a non-believer? Is it wrong for a Christian to marry a non-believer? And we would all say, well, it's best not to. And then we'd say, well, marriage is hard enough as it is, and at least if you have, you have a good chance if you marry someone with the same values and spiritual commitment. But would you go so far as to say it's wrong? Most of us are a little hesitant, reticent to say that, right? You'd come forward, someone come forward. There's going to be testimony. Someone's going to say, I married an unbeliever, and after 20 years, I converted him. And I'm going to be rejoicing every time I hear that. But God is not interested in holy matrimony evangelism. That's not what those verses mean. And then there's the other side. Well, my kid married a Christian, and it was such a bad situation that he might as well have married a pagan, right? I lament those things, too. But in the course of the story of God's history with humanity, and especially his people, he's repetitive, and he is so insistent on this and emphatic. And here's the funny thing is, I hear more Christians, I hear more Christians complaining and passionately arguing, how can a white man marry a black girl? How dare they do that? But they have no inclination of compromise or, 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 or conviction about a believer marrying someone who's not a believer. And God said, has no problem black and white. He has big problems, believer versus unbeliever. 
When are our feelings going to match our convictions instead of our American identity in this? Solomon thought, well, it's just a political alliance. It's just what, but that's just what people do when they're in my position. And here's my question. He takes these foreign women, brings them into the heart of God's people with his wisdom and his pedigree. Why did he not convert them? Anybody got an answer? In all his strength of conviction and all the great wisdom from God, how in the world did this man not convert them, taking them out of their home country, bringing them right here in the heart of Israel? Why is it that these women were able to turn him and he wasn't able to turn a one of them? I have no idea. But God knew that was going to happen, didn't he? It's exactly what God said. And here I'm being harsh again. Randy's going to get me. That's okay. I just want to shock you a little bit to say, how serious is it with God that I meet someone who has shared faith in him? It gets worse than this. He desired so much to please those women that he worshiped their gods. This is another, this is a whole nother thing, right? Remember the trajectory? You know, he's trying to uh, get along splendidly in the world with everybody, going by the world's rules. And then he sets his heart on these beautiful women with their different beliefs, and he wants to keep them happy. And then you go to church with them because nothing like going to church with my wife. And so he goes to the church with his wife. How many different Saturdays would it take for him to go to church with one of those women and absorb all a thousand? How many, would he, how many years before he went to church twice with the same woman? Bizarre, isn't it? And he began to like what they do in worship. Because I'm going to tell you this very, this is just honest. Worship of false gods is a whole lot more fun than what we do here. Can I tell you that? Can I tell you that if you are a young person, you're going to go to worship another God somewhere, and you're going to go to their worship service, I'm not going to tell you you're going to hate it and feel uncomfortable and walk away. No, no, you're going to like it. It's fun. Because all the gods that he mentions are all fertility gods. They're reproduction gods. They're sex gods. And you know what they did to worship their sex gods? They engaged in sex and stuff. And so it was all the immorality that you could whip up. Because here's the thing. Their religion was made by them because there was no God there. And so they created and and, and engineered their worship to be pleasing to themselves. Because they're the ones designing it. We didn't design this worship service tonight. You give me a choice, I'm going to be a whole lot more flashy and fun than what we do here. This is so boring, and all the teenagers will tell you that. You have to learn how to love this worship. This has to matter something to you. You've got to believe it in your heart for this to matter at all, because we don't have the bands, we don't have the music, we don't have the dancers, we don't have the lights, we don't have anything. We've got one thing from God. I want you to be able to be edified when you come together like this. Boring. You go to another God's, scantily clad women dancing around, a little bit of sacred prostitution, and you'll never want to go up on the hill again. <laughs> they worship sex, and it's a powerful draw. Have you noticed the world doing this too? Have you seen it? Our culture worships sex too. It's everywhere. It sells everything. It draws all attention. 
It has impact on everything. It, creates, it sets up these crazy standards for people. And it sets up these weird expectations for what marriage should be. And the reason marriage is not working is because I find out that the pornography-painted marriage that I have in my teenage years is not the reality of a real person. And suddenly they can't measure up. And I'm divorced, and I'm divorced because of the worship of sex that I've engaged in all these years. It disrupts the family. Pornography is like epidemic proportions, and young people even below 10, every time, listen, every time you give your kid that phone, you are handing them a world of this stuff, and they're seeing it, and don't tell me they're not. They know how to get around what you know. Sexualizing our young people at such an early age, I see some of our young girls, in order to dress up to do some of the stuff they do, they look like sex objects at 9 and 10 years old. And then sex abuse is rampant, and we wonder why. And the entire world seems overstimulated, and any effort to put any kind of restraint on it is met with First Amendment stops. And in all this, God speaks about what he considers beautiful among women, and we laugh ourselves to death over God's definition of a beautiful woman. That is so yesterday, such a prude. And here's Solomon going to these worship services, worshiping the sex gods, and as part of that, it leads to sexual immorality in him, which leads to more worship, which leads to more sexual immorality, which leads to more worship, which leads to sexual immorality, and no one can stop this. No one can stop it. It just goes around and around. And you know what's really sad about this? <laughs> I hear people talk about how romantic the Song of Solomon is. He sang that to a different woman every day for three years. How romantic is that? Oh, I'm special. Yeah, you are. Tomorrow night, someone else will be special. Isn't that crazy? Is anybody special now? Then he became self-absorbed. This really comes from Deuteronomy chapter 17. I want you to see this passage. This is predicting what will happen with kings if you if you model your reign after all the other nations do. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself, this is what I want you to do to pre prevent all this, write for himself in a book the copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. I want him to write every word down on a piece of paper. It shall be with him. He'll read it all the days of his life. I want to make sure that he's reading the law every day. He may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them. Obviously, Solomon was not. Look at the next line. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. And he'll turn aside from the commandments, either the right hand or the left. He thought he was better than the people he was supposed to be serving. Solomon did lift himself up above his brothers. How do we know that? Well, he didn't obey the laws of God. That was one thing. He forced him, and he, he put a lot of people into forced labor to, in order to carry out all the projects he wanted for his legacy. But I want you to notice, as we turn to 1 Kings 12, what happens when his son tries to figure out the best way to reign. And one of the things he does, beginning verse 3, is he brings the cabinet members of his father, Solomon's. Solomon's dead now. 
Rehoboam's going to take over, and he gathers the cabinet members of his father's reign. And he says to them, and they sent him and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. You want to take over the nation? Here's what you do. Your father was so burdensome on us. He didn't think about us. He just burdened us with taxes and forced labor and to do all the stuff that he wanted to do. He was terrible. If you want us to love you, lighten up on us, and we'll serve you. Then he gathers the young men together, and you remember what they said? Double down, baby, double down. And what did he choose to do? He doubled down and he lost the king kingdom. You'll start thinking that this life is about satisfying yourself. Get along politically in the world, going after the women you want, all the stimulation you want. You'll worship other gods. And you'll think all this life is meant is to make me have as much fun as I can while I'm doing my tour around the sun. And that's not what your life is about. When Jesus called us, you see, I expect the world to live that way, but those who are in the church, you heard the call. Jesus said you count the cost first. You don't, you don't major in self-fulfillment. You major in self-what? You don't major in self-fulfillment. You major in self-denial. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. That's what we chose to do. And if you're in the kingdom, that's what your mantra is. Now, there's one last one. This is the most controversial one because this is debatable. I'm not sure how scriptures fit together. Trying to put all the, the works of Solomon in here. But Solomon just simply failed to repent. Now you're going to tell me, Randy's going to come up afterwards, he's going to say, but you have Ecclesiastes. True. Solomon, at some point in time, wrote Ecclesiastes, where he talked about his tour through all these things, and at the end, he kind of came back around. But then you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4, as we read earlier, and it says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his David, his father. When was Ecclesiastes written? Did he do all this and then do like a midnight Hail Mary? I want you to know you can do that. I want you to know the grace of God is so incredibly amazing that if you on your deathbed, having lived the Christian life and fallen away for a while, if you on your deathbed repent, according to scriptures, I understand it, God accepts that. But please don't count on it. Don't do that. I think it's, I, I don't know whether Solomon somehow came to his senses a little bit in the road Ecclesiastes, if he wrote it sometime during his life, and then later on when he was old, these women just finally, just finally wore him down, and he just lost his faith, at least a good portion of it. I don't know, but what I do know is that reading that we just had a moment ago, maybe 40 minutes ago, I don't know. I don't know if you heard the reading, but he has the voice for somebody on the radio. Did you notice that? Anybody notice that? I have a face for radio, but he's got a voice for radio. And God said to him, I am so angry with you. I've warned you, and you're still doing it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to strip the kingdom. I'm going to put 
10 out of 12 tribes out of business and out of your hands. I'm still going to keep my promise to your, your father David, but not for your sake, but for David's sake. I'm going to let you have a couple of kingdoms down here. And so I'm going to keep my word with the smallest little portion of what's left of Israel. But because of your behavior, I'm stripping 10 of them away from you. And forever the kingdom is going to be split to pieces. There's the legacy of Solomon. I don't know when he, if he repented, I hope he did. I hope he did. But he didn't immediately. Because after God tells him in chapter 11, verses 9 through 13, here's what I'm going to do. He doesn't say a word, he just walks on. He, did not, he was not able to repent, at least for a long time. Y'all, if we live this way for very long, we will find ourselves unable to repent. We will play this game so much. We'll compromise politically so much. We will, we will interact with unbelievers so much and be enjoying that relationship that takes us away from God. And we will find ourselves even worshiping the gods of our world. It's not going to be something we bow down to, but it's the influences of the world. And we will become self-absorbed and we won't be able to repent anymore. And even if you could muster it, it would be at your deathbed. Please don't leave it like that. I don't know what happened to Solomon. And in some ways, it doesn't matter. What matters now is, what's happening with you? What's happening with you? And tonight, if you've grown distant from God by getting friendly with the world and getting comfortable like that, not being faithful to your spouse, not being faithful to God's idea of what marriage should be, and you find yourself taking your cue from other things in the world other than God, and you become self-absorbed, it's all about me, and suddenly tonight, maybe it dawns on you, what am I doing? This is not what I signed on for. When I bowed my knee to Jesus, this is not what I offered him. It's not what I promised him. You still can repent. And tonight, you have a shot of it. And we'd love to help you as we stand, as we sing together.